I want to tell everyone, don't argue with each other. Be best friends. Welcome to the Telling It Our Way podcast. I'm Allie. And I'm Becca. In this podcast, we bring you stories by disabled people about disabled people. Stories from the daily lives of self-advocates with intellectual and developmental disabilities. These are real people with complicated lives. They don't want your pity and they don't exist to inspire you. Yeah, this is not inspiration porn. So Becca, today we're talking about community. What do we mean by community? What makes a community? It seems a little abstract. What are we wrestling with here? Community inclusion is this like big buzzword in in the disability services, but it's not at all clear what we mean by that. It's not clear what we mean by community. It's not clear what we mean by inclusion, right? Does this mean going to the grocery store once a month or does it mean having a meaningful relationship with your neighbors, right? And, and who is community? Is it peers with disabilities? Is it peers without disabilities? And is it just being physically in those spaces? So there's a lot that we have to unpack around what we mean by community and particularly what we mean by community inclusion. Yeah, and I do think it comes from a good place, a place where we recognize that there was a time when a lot of people with intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities were just so isolated, right? Whether it was because they lacked transportation or workplaces weren't accessible for for them. And so this idea of community inclusion comes from a place of, of wanting to make sure that folks are not as isolated as they once were. But I also sometimes wonder is is if it's with peers, right? So it's people with intellectual disabilities hanging out with other people with intellectual disabilities, are we still just promoting segregated spaces? And then how do we let people self-select into communities that they want to belong in, right? And so if you want to be in a disability-specific space, is that antithetical to community inclusion? Or do we need to think about that as an important element? So I I went to the Institute of Community Inclusion at um, the University of Massachusetts. And what they say community inclusion includes is not just kind of where you are, but these ideas of personal choice, self-determination, and social and economic justice. And so thinking about community that way, not as a place, but as a process, that's really helped me think through community a little bit differently. It's interesting that that definition also includes social and economic justice, because I would think that, oh, economic justice, what does that have to do with community? But when you think about what the barriers are for people to be able to relate with one another and get together. And I also just think about the role of technology in building community now for so many of us and how important online spaces may or may not be for folks with intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities. Yeah, and so, I mean, I think it means community also has to include equal access to housing. It has to include equal access to employment and equal access to social services. But today, I actually, I think we're going to focus a little bit more on the relationship aspect of community. We talked about families last week, and now we're just sort of broadening out that that scope a little bit more. Uh, yeah, our first story is from Davina, and she shares about how a long-term friendship can emerge out of a kind of toxic community dynamic. Yeah, so Davina's telling us about this kind of moment of forced connection that happened with her in high school and how that's led to this lifelong, beautiful friendship. Let's listen. I want to talk about my friend. We've been friends for 20 years in high school. 
There was a group of, believe me, that wanted to beat me up. I didn't like it at all. It's not fun to get picked on. They knew I had that syndrome. They made fun of me and hurt me. I couldn't do it. I just want to go to class. One of the people in that group, I were both in special ed classes. Our principal paired us together and told us to be friends. She was only a friend I made and who I made in high school. Now she's my best friend. That started a 20-year friendship. It will be 21 years in August. Now we do lots of things together. She comes to my house for my birthday. I go to her house to hang out with her and her roommate. We were do we do theater together. We went to Bitter Bear together and then our our bear named Vina because I am her best friend. It is a special friendship. We make funny faces and jokes. When I when I'm sad she turns into mama bear to protect me. She is like a sister to me. Sometimes we talk a lot and sometimes we don't. I love her to pieces. We can express our feelings to each other. We have a special bond. I, I want to tell everyone, don't argue with each other. Be, be best friends. Thank you, Davina, for that story. I think it's really easy for us to underestimate the value of friendship, particularly those kinds of friendships that we can carry with us throughout these big transitions in our lives, right? So Davina's talking about going from high school now, you know, into her 30s and and maintaining these friendships. It's not an easy thing to do for any of us. And I recently saw a study from 2020 by Darren McCausland and, and some colleagues in Ireland talking about people with intellectual and developmental disabilities over 40 and the f- kinds of friendships that they have. And one thing that they note is there's some precariousness to these friendships, right? So maintaining friendships depends on a lot of elements that are more than just whether you want those friendships or not. You know, there have been some folks who have argued that friendship is the most radical relationship you can have because it's not anything that is pinned down by any sort of state or kinship relationships, right? So it it could so easily be that it they're ephemeral, they can just disappear pretty quickly. So being able to maintain a long-term friendship is one of the more radical things you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, to go back to the study, what they found is, you know, most people say that they have friends, right? A a huge percentage in this study, they said over 90 percent of people say they have friends, but a lot fewer say they have a best friend. It's only 52 percent. And those friendships are often contingent on the kinds of structures around you, right? So a lot of those friendships are with staff or with people who live with you, right? So rather than people you're selecting to be part of your community, they're just the people that are there. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm reading this statistic here that the NCI, can you tell us what the NCI is? Oh, can I? It's the National Core Indicators. Oh, Long-time listeners will know. 
<laughs> so the National Court Indicators is a little optimistic. They say that 72% of people with IDD report having a best friend. So that's that's pretty good. But that can be staff or family. And 11% often feel very lonely. So that actually feels like a, too large of a number for me to say 11% of people are feeling very lonely in this community. Yeah. And just one other piece of evidence that I want to throw out there is around the kinds of friendship networks that people with intellectual disabilities have and how they're a little bit different from the kinds of networks that Uh, non-disabled people often have. So this is coming from a a study from Rachel Forrester-Jones and some colleagues from 2006. And what they find is that people with intellectual disabilities tend to have social networks amounting to roughly 22 people. And so those are, you know, within all these different layers of life, you know, family, staff, friends. And those tend to be really dense networks. So often those 22 people all know each other versus, you know, non-disabled people. There's some other studies about this. Those networks are often over 100 people and are from all sorts of different walks of life. You wouldn't expect your coworkers at work to know your friend from the grocery store and, and so forth, right? So those are a little bit more dispersed. That's interesting because we were just talking with a self-advocate here in Ohio and she was mentioning a number of other people that we also know and we were talking about how interrelated and close-knit this network of self-advocates really seems to be here in Ohio anyway. Right. So I mean that density seems like a real benefit in some ways because you know you have all these people that you know in common but in another sense if you for example your dense network is located primarily in your day service and then your funding drops out and you can't go to your day service anymore that could be you know 18 of those 22 people in your in your social network gone yeah and that's why moving communities can be really tricky Mm -hmm. well sometimes i wonder too when we ask these questions on surveys about friendship how often we are maybe assuming that that we're talking about human friendships, right? Mm. And I think that there's a lot to be said about animal friendships, and we do have a story coming up next about that. The story that we have is about a different kind of community between animals and humans. And I think many of us can relate to having close relationships with pets, but sometimes the relationship between animals and disabled people can take on a heightened significance. A lot of times these relationships are working ones, whether officially, like through a service animal, but other times it's just informal, but still what I would call working. So for our listeners, we should let you know that Matthew's story, which is up next, does include the discussion of death, both people and animals. So please take care of yourself if you choose to listen. All right, let's hear it. My mom taught me about animals and nature growing up. She loved animals. She taught me to be very gentle and very kind. I saw her doing that in the past and it imprinted on me. I'm more of an animal person than a people person. Animals are more caring and loving. They don't care about how you look. They don't judge at all. All they want is love, attention, a warm home, and food. They don't gossip, criticize, harass, mock, or judge. My first animal was a rabbit named Bugs Bunny. He would run around the apartment and had a bad habit of chewing. We had to get him a new home because rabbits weren't allowed in the apartment complex. I got sad we had to get rid of him. Then we had a parakeet named Morningstar. She was special. She was a rescue. She couldn't fly at all. We carried her around the apartment. 
My mom found a sanctuary for her so she wasn't around our cats and could be with other birds. We had a gray cat named Smoke. She acted like she was royalty. She gave birth to Tigger, her kitten. Then we had Nico, a very unique, special personality. He was a rescue too. He loved being with my mom. He followed my mom everywhere in the apartment. Then we had one, then one winter, my mom and I were helping shovel the snow. I heard this little Mew. I told my mom to listen. We found this little caldicle. She was an itty bitty kitten we named Mulan. Then we had Ronin from the animal shelter. Ronan was my service dog. He was a triple mix, Dolman, Wattwire, Terrier. Ronan loved food, of course. He loved going on walks and attention. My mom had to do a lot of paperwork to get Ronan certified as a service dog. It cost a lot of money to get him trained. I was worried he wasn't going to pass. Training was new and he was very happy and excited. He was very energetic and wanted to play all the time. We had to teach him to sit, listen, and stay. We had to be very strict with him. It was a lot of work and a lot of training, but he got it eventually. My mom passed away and I had to move. My cats weren't allowed to come with me. When I moved, I said Ronan had to come with me. He was like my brother. He was the only family I had left. I took Ronan with me everywhere, especially he loved the zoo. When he, Ronan was 13, he passed away. After I lost Ronan, I wanted to give back to innocent animals in need. Rescue animals are special. They live a lot. If you take in a rescue, Give them more caring, loving home. They deserve a lot of special attention. Give them a second chance. I get very sad when I see stories about animals getting thrown out on the street. We got my first dog, Bear, from a small shelter. I want to help the animals there. I want to give the monies to animals in need. My SSA, Michelle, Help me deliver a check for $500 to the man who runs the shelter, Steve. It was a surprise. He was very shocked and happy. He gave me and Michelle a special tour. One room was full of kitty cats. An orange cat jumped in my arm and I was horned the whole time. Then we saw the dogs. One of them sat on top of me the whole time. I wanted to take her with me. My mom taught me well. I inherited her love of nature and animals. One day, I want to buy a giant home and give it to the animals. My goal is one day to have a world where all animals are safe, cared for, and free, where all of them have a home. Thank you so much to Matthew for that story. You know, there's so much that I appreciate about Matthew's story. You can really feel his love for animals, but also his care for his community and his his strong desire to educate and improve the lives of the people and the animals around him. I think back to that that definition of, of community from the Institute for Community Inclusion, talking about personal choice as this big aspect of community inclusion, and Matthew choosing to donate his money in pursuit of the, the kind of community that he wants to build, one where humans and animals both have the best life possible. I think that's a, such a good example of, of 
what that looks like in action. I also think that animals are such great conduits to bring different communities together, right? Mm -hmm. And that if there's just two people who like a dog and they might have nothing else in common, but there's a golden retriever in the corner of the room, (laughs) that can bring people together in a way that I think is really hopeful for building community. Yeah, right? So I I mean, at the start of the episode, we were trying to struggle through what we mean by community. But at the end, I think my definition's even bigger than what I thought it was, you know, at the beginning. And yeah, we've totally figured it out. It's completely clear now what community is. It's everyone and everything. Yeah, yeah, totally. Everyone and everything. <laughs> so before we end, I want to thank our contributors, Davina and Matthew, and our associate producer, Connor Smenner, and our Telling It Our Way advisory board members, Jorita Fox, Quinn Thomas, and Gavin Daly. And special thanks to our WGTE producer, Chris Pfeiffer and WGTE. To access transcripts for this show and any other show notes, please visit WGTE.org slash Our Way. I'm Allie Day. And I'm Becca Monsalione, and you've been listening to Telling It Our Way. WGTE. Voices around us. WGTE is supported in part by American Rescue Plan Act funds allocated by the City of Toledo and the Lucas County Commissioners and administered by the Arts Commission.